Welcome to Dicey Stuff, the podcast about life, because, well, the dicey stuff is the realest stuff of our lives. Come along as Lois examines living as a Christian woman in this modern age. Time to roll. Welcome to this episode of Dicey Stuff, the podcast. Thanks for joining me. My name is Lois Matson. Remember that all of life is dicey. We did the Bible story about Eve, the mother of all living. Today we're going to start looking at the life of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Thanks for coming along with me for the ride. Remember back with me for a moment. In the first Bible story, the serpent tempted Eve by casting doubt on what God had said. That tricksy villain, that fallen angel, asked Eve, Did God really say... And Eve believed the lie of the serpent instead of the truth of God's spoken word. Her own eyes and her own reason betrayed her into thinking it would be a good thing to eat the fruit. She lied to herself. That fruit looks like it would be good for food. Why, it looks positively delicious. Hmm, I do think that wisdom would be a good quality for humans to have. God is wise and we'll be like him. Maybe Eve didn't comprehend that she had already been created in the very image of God. She was a child of the Lord God himself, formed by his own hand, knowing only good and never evil. But Eve was deceived, and she took a bite of the fruit, and the world broke. You remember the consequences of that little bite of fruit. The entire creation went from whole and perfect to shattered and imperfect, from sinless to sin full. Death, sickness, pain in childbirth, slaving away for our daily bread, even thistles and thorns, all of these are a result of the fall. And more dire than those effects, God and man were separated, and there was no longer communion between them. No more walks together in the garden in the cool of the day. No more heart-to-heart talks. Oh, but the news wasn't all bad. God gave a promise to the serpent. The first gospel in the scripture is the very good news that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, although his heel would be bruised in the process. One day that seed would come, born from the womb of a woman. Humanity would be restored from the fall, and peace would be restored between God and man. None of Eve's sons were the promised seed. None of Eve's grandsons were the promised seed. Many generations lived and died, enduring the consequences of the fall, before the virgin mother brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. This brings us to our dicey Bible story for today, about Mary, the mother of our Lord. The prophets had foretold the coming Messiah for centuries, and God had given them very specific details about the Chosen One. He would be born of a virgin. How dicey is that? Everyone knows that virgins don't get pregnant. This Emmanuel, who is God with us, would be born in Bethlehem. This king of Israel would be eternal heir to the throne of David. This lion of the tribe of Judah would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This root of Jesse would rise up like a shoot from among his brothers. This savior of the world would live for a time in Egypt. This prophet of the Most High would be called a Nazarene. Those are the nicer bits of prophecy. 
There were also horrifying and scary details. The Son of Man would come to his own, but his own people would not receive him. The innocent one would be falsely accused and betrayed. This sheep would be silent before his accusers. Soldiers would gamble for his garments. The Messiah would be spat on, condemned, and finally crucified. The Son of God would be forsaken by God the Father. The Redeemer of humankind would die a criminal's death outside the city of Jerusalem. Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One, would die naked and ashamed. Sounds familiar, right? Remember when Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed before God? This Chosen One who would buy back Adam, Eve, and every human since, including you and me, fulfilled every detail of every prophecy that had ever been written about Him. But there was one unbelievably dicey detail that had to blow the mind of any person who really heard it. After His death and burial, this sinless one would rise again on the third day. Hoo-wee! That's even crazier than a virgin having a baby. Everyone knows that dead people don't live again. It's been the same since Abel, the first victim of physical death. Death and taxes, those are the two immutable certainties, right? So how did this all come to be, anyway? How did we get to Jesus and death and taxes when we're supposed to be talking about Mary, the mother of our Lord? Don't distract me, people! At the time of the New Testament, the little city of Nazareth in Galilee was off the beaten path, not located at the juncture of two busy roadways. If you were in Nazareth, it was because you planned to go there, not because you were passing by on the highway en route to somewhere more important. Nazareth also wasn't held in high regard by the Hebrew people. Recall, if you will, the answer to Philip's claim to Nathanael that they had found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael's scathing reply was, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The New Testament gives few details of Mary's life, but we know she was a young woman, a virgin, living in Nazareth. According to tradition, she was probably about 14 years of age when she was espoused or betrothed to Joseph, who was likely older than Mary. In those days, a betrothal was more binding than an engagement in our culture, and it had to be dissolved by an official decree of divorce. We first hear of the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation, the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary that she will bear the child Jesus. In the church year, Gabriel's visit to Mary is celebrated on March 25th, nine months before Christmas Day. This makes logical sense, as nine months is the typical gestation for a human baby. But I think it's a bit unfortunate that the Annunciation often comes right in the middle of Lent, when we're focused on the inexorable march of Jesus to the cross, and his conception isn't really noticed much. It seems to me that the beginning of the Incarnation should be worth a mention, right? We know what's going to happen after all. God himself will take on human flesh. That's a really big deal. But let's begin our story, so you can hear it for yourself. Mary is going about her life in Nazareth, when one day, the angel Gabriel, the messenger of the Most High God, comes to her with a most amazing salutation. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Naturally, these words greatly trouble Mary, right? And she tries to figure out what kind of greeting this can be. Who is this messenger and what is he saying? This is a dicey situation right here. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to have an angel show up and talk to you. 
Angel appearances aren't an everyday event, and they weren't even in biblical times. Angels come to important people like Abraham or Moses. I wonder, as I consider Mary's confusion, what Gabriel looked like. Did he look like a normal man? Did he have wings? Did he look like some of the Bible story depictions, shining with an otherworldly presence? It's no surprise that Mary is confused and a bit frightened. It seems like she doesn't know what to say, as she stumbles around inside her own head, trying to make sense of Gabriel's greeting. Gabriel keeps talking, though. He assures her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Then he delivers the most astounding bit of news that any woman, especially a virgin, could expect to hear. Even though the prophecies have been foretold for centuries, it must be quite a surprise to find out that you will be the woman who will bring forth the promised seed, the Messiah and Savior of the world. Gabriel says words that almost seem to make no sense. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Full stop. Absorb these words for just a minute. Mary, you will conceive and bear a son. Your child, Jesus, will be called the Son of the Most High. How can this be? And that is exactly Mary's response to the angel. How will this be, since I do not know a man? Mary was in effect saying, How will this even happen, since I am a virgin and I don't have a husband? Mary's mind must have been racing. Being a young Jewish woman, she would likely have known the prophecies. She may have even dreamed of being the one who would fulfill them. It isn't out of the realm of possibility that Jewish girls would wonder, What if I'm the one? Sidetrack back to Eve for just a minute. Tradition holds that Eve was a virgin at the time of the fall, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. The scripture says in Genesis 4 verse 1 that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. In biblical language, to know someone is to know them intimately, to have a sexual relationship with them. Isn't it interesting to consider that the fall into sin was brought about by a virgin, and the promised seed who will redeem the human race will also be brought forth by a virgin? Let's return to Mary. After she asks Gabriel how this will be since she's a virgin, the angel answers her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child you will bear will be called Holy, the Son of God. Full stop, again. Mary doesn't seem to be mind-blown, but I sure am, thinking about the words that Gabriel has said. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, your holy child will be called the Son of God. Do these seem like completely incomprehensible concepts to you? They are to me. I've read the words many times over, but my mind can hardly wrap around them. We know the intimacy of child-making and of conception, and we know that the child conceived has the characteristics and DNA of both father and mother. This child of Mary will be called the Son of God, because the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Mary will be the mother of Jesus, but the Lord God Almighty will be his Father. This child of Mary will be true God and true man. Jesus will be fully divine and fully human in one God-man. That's straight up astounding. Remember back to Adam and Eve? Adam was the first human, and when he and Eve disobeyed God's command, the whole of creation shattered. 
Have you ever seen a windshield after a car accident? It's held together by a thin sheet of plastic, so it's still in the shape of a windshield, but the glass itself is broken into teeny tiny bits. That's what happened when Eve tasted the fruit. Creation itself cracked like laminated safety glass. God's creation is still here. The sun still shines. Animals and plants reproduce. Humans live and die. That's a consequence of sin. But creation has waited for complete redemption and restoration ever since. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, that beautiful resurrection chapter, Jesus was the second Adam. Paul writes that since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The first Adam became a living soul, and the second Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was alive, but the second Adam gives life, life that is eternal. This tiny child, who Gabriel said would be conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, will be the light of the world, and the darkness will finally be overcome. Next, Gabriel explains that Mary's cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, although everyone thought that Elizabeth was unable to bear children. She's now in her sixth month of pregnancy, this woman who was called barren. Gabriel ends his message to Mary with these words, For nothing will be impossible with God. And somehow, Mary has the courage to reply, Behold, I am the servant, the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It seems to my mind that Mary must have been given these words from God himself to be able to answer as she did. Think about this for a second. Mary is espoused to Joseph, and she's a virgin. But she just agreed to bear a child without the protection of a husband and marriage. In Nazareth and in all of Israel in those days, the words that Mary spoke were at best cause for great shame and disrespect, and at worst, a death sentence. Deuteronomy 22 gives very strict consequences for sexual immorality. Here are some examples. The woman who presents herself as a virgin, but is not found to be a virgin on her wedding night, will die. The man and woman who are caught in adultery will die. If a betrothed virgin has sex with a man within the city, both will die. Outside the city, the woman will escape the death penalty because she had no recourse for rescue, as no one could hear her calls for help. So Mary consented to Gabriel's strange message. What word works here? Request? Command? Gabriel told Mary what would happen, so it wasn't a request exactly, but Mary agreed to his directive by saying, Let it happen to me according to your word. With her consent, Mary has entered into a potentially deadly situation. At the word of an angel, who hailed her with a strange greeting, spoke unbelievably strange words, and made strange predictions about her future. And so it came to pass. Mary, the virgin, conceived a child of the Holy Spirit. What more can we say about that? As Gabriel had said, nothing will be impossible with God. All we know from the scripture is that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. The power of the Most High overshadowed her, and the virgin conceived in her womb. Let's talk about some thoughts about pregnancy that immediately come to mind. Did Mary have morning sickness? Was she tired all the time? Did she have strange food cravings? We don't know these things, as the scripture is silent on them. 
but it wouldn't surprise me if Mary had all the typical pregnancy symptoms. Although the child in her womb was sinless, Mary was a sinner and subject to the same curse as Eve. The Lord God had told Eve, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Other things that I wonder about, but that the scripture is silent on. Did Mary tell her parents? Did she tell Joseph? Or did she hold her secret to herself as she hurry, hurry, hurried to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of Judah? I could see myself wanting the advice of my older cousin to decide how to break this dicey news to my espoused husband. Whew! It's about 90 miles from Nazareth to the hill country of Judah, and we have no idea if Mary traveled that distance alone or if someone accompanied her. It was common in those days to join a caravan of merchants and pilgrims for protection when traveling a longer distance. Some scholars think that Joseph may have brought her to Judah and then come back for her when she returned to Nazareth. So Mary comes to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I wonder what she's thinking as she walks up the front path to the door. Maybe something like, I really hope they believe me. How can I explain this? It isn't every day that a virgin girl is pregnant and with a child that she claims has no earthly father. O Lord of heaven, help them understand that you are behind all this. I expect that Mary was praying for God's Spirit to intervene and to strengthen her for this conversation that had the potential to be very uncomfortable. Remember that Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy with her son John, who would be the forerunner of Christ. When Mary arrives and enters the house, she greets Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, her tiny baby John leaps in her womb. The Holy Spirit does intervene. The Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Look, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. If Mary had prayed on the journey to Elizabeth's, her prayer surely had been answered. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit could Elizabeth have known that Mary was the mother of her Lord, and only by the power of the Spirit could tiny six-month-in-utero baby John have leaped for joy that his Savior was near. Mary is extremely thankful for the Lord's provision of her in her humble estate. She speaks a beautiful hymn of praise that is often called the Magnificat. The first word of her hymn in the Latin translation of the text is Magnificat, and that's where the name comes from. Mary's song is recorded in Luke 1, verses 46 through 55, and it begins, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Notice the poetic parallels. Her soul magnifies the Lord, and her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. She speaks of the Almighty Lord and the holiness of his name. She tells of his mercy for generations of those who fear him. Mary continues, but now instead of parallels, there are contrasts. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things 
and the rich he has sent away empty. Do you hear the contrast? The mighty are brought down and the lowly are exalted. The hungry are filled and the rich are emptied. Mary ends with, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The Almighty One has not forgotten Israel, and his help is on the way, the tiny God-man hidden in the womb of Mary. The Lord remembers in his mercy, and he helps, just as he promised the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants forever. What a blissful thought. The Lord remembers his promises. The scripture says that Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months. Remember that Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy when Gabriel comes to Mary. So is Mary there for the delivery of John? Scripture doesn't say either way, but many Bible scholars think that she stayed until after John was born. If she did, I wonder if she assisted her cousin at the birth of John. Could this have been God's way of preparing Mary for her own delivery a few months later? After three months in the hill country, Mary returns to her own home in Nazareth. At some point, Joseph hears about the pregnancy, and he is considering how to respond to this situation. Mary and Joseph are legally pledged to be married, and Joseph knows that he hasn't been intimate with Mary. But she is with child. With child from the Holy Spirit, according to Mary. Joseph has much to consider. He is a just man, and he doesn't want Mary to be shamed. But he doesn't want a loose woman for a wife. He knows the consequences for sexual immorality, so he has compassion and has resolved to quietly divorce Mary. Joseph likely hopes to put this whole situation behind him as quickly as possible. One night, as Joseph is pondering this state of affairs, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did exactly as the angel commanded. He took Mary as his wife, but he wasn't intimate with Mary until much later, after she'd given birth to a son. The couple are living in Nazareth, where Joseph is probably working as a carpenter. Sometimes when I think of that little town, I wonder if Mary was welcomed by the women of the village, or if she was rejected for her unusual pregnancy. Did she tell others of Gabriel's visit? And, if she had the courage to talk about it, would anyone believe her incredible story? Was Mary the object of wagging tongues and whispered conversations behind eyes that held condemnation? As time passes and the pregnancy becomes more obvious, was it easier to hide away at home and not have to explain? Mary surely lived through some dicey stuff. Time is passing, as it does, and Mary's pregnancy is progressing. News comes from the capital that the emperor is flexing his political muscles again. Hear ye, hear ye! Caesar Augustus has decreed that a census will take place throughout the entire Roman Empire. Everyone has to return to their ancestral town to register and pay their taxes. Rome needs plenty of tax money to fund its armies, roads, and various territories. Joseph is a descendant of King David and Bethlehem is the city of David, so Joseph must go to Bethlehem to be counted and taxed. Little does Caesar Augustus know that he is moving events forward to fulfill an ancient prophecy about the Messiah. The prophet Micah had written about 700 years earlier 
that little Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the one who was to be the ruler in Israel, the one who is from everlasting. The emperor is thinking only of his kingdom, but God is working behind the scenes to get Mary to Bethlehem in time for the birth of his son. The scripture says Mary was great with child, and anyone who's had a baby knows what that phrase means. It's likely that Mary's abdomen and ankles are swollen, her back is aching, and her child is sitting uncomfortably on her bladder. She's probably having Braxton Hicks contractions and can't catch a full deep breath. Mary's really not feeling like traveling, I would think, but when the emperor says go, you go. The distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 90 miles. There weren't luxurious means of travel that we take for granted today, so how did Joseph and Mary make that journey? We don't know for sure. Maybe they joined a caravan, like we talked about earlier. Many Bible story books show Mary cutely perched on a donkey with the sweetest baby bump as Joseph leads them along to Bethlehem. If that's how it really happened, it sounds miserable to me. Can you imagine riding a donkey for 90 miles at full term? While they were in Bethlehem, according to God's good timing, and so that prophecy would be fulfilled, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Finally, after nine long months, baby time has come. Let's look at one of the most familiar verses about the birth of Jesus. Luke 2.7 says, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There is a lot to unpack in that little verse. Let's break it down. First off, Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Mary is very young, and she's never been sexually active or intimate with a man. Knowing the birth process, how uncomfortable would it be to deliver a baby. At the moment, I'm speaking only of modesty. She's probably not shown those baby-birthing body parts to anybody since she was out of diapers. Next is the physical issue. She's a virgin, and a baby coming through the birth canal would have to be a pretty shocking experience. I wonder if Joseph was with her, or if she had a midwife or other women from Bethlehem in attendance. Maybe Mary delivered her own baby, Martin Luther believed that Mary gave birth without pain, and so did many other church fathers, but that's not something that we can know for certain. Jesus talks about the sorrow that a woman has when giving birth, but when it's over, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child has been born into the world. I'm sure that Mary had that joy, whether she had a painless delivery or not. The next phrase in the verse is that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Imagine with me. Mary is washing her newborn son, maybe marveling over his tiny toes and fingers. Next, she rubs his body with salt and olive oil and then wraps him tightly in long bands of clean cloth to keep him warm and protected. This was the normal method of caring for an infant at birth. It kind of blows my mind a little to think of tiny baby Jesus, creator of the universe, needing to be wrapped against the cold and to be sheltered from the very elements that he created. Moving on, the surprising next phrase is that Mary laid him in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? It's the feeding trough where hay or grain was put for animals to eat. That's not a normal sleep surface for any newborn. And this one was the Word made flesh, the Son of God himself. 
you would expect that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be carefully laid into the finest bed that money could buy, or that the great physician would be attended by the finest physicians on the planet. But this holy one of Israel was laid in a manger. Why? The last phrase of Luke 2.7 tells us, because there was no room for them in the inn. Bethlehem was a small town, perhaps a few hundred people at our best guess, but it could have been filled to overflowing by all those who came to be counted and taxed. It probably didn't have a Holiday Inn or Best Western, right? So visitors relied on the good graces of the citizens of the village for shelter. The Greek word that is translated as inn is translated as guest chamber or guest room in Luke 22. They were probably in a cave or a lower level of a home where animals were kept. Wherever they were, there was no room for them in the more comfortable accommodations in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus, the true bread of life which came down from heaven, was laid in a feeding trough for insensible animals. Isn't that fitting? Later that night, Mary and Joseph hear a commotion. It sounds like someone is outside. Going to the entrance, Joseph sees shepherds gesturing and talking excitedly. An angel had appeared, and the shepherds had seen the shining glory of the Lord. But the angel brought a comforting message to them. Do not fear. I wonder if the shepherds told Joseph something like this. The angel told us about a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Then the sky was full of angels, so many of them, and they were praising God with these words. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Then the angels disappeared back into the blackness of the sky. So we hurried here to see him. Is he here? Where is he? We were told to look for a sign. He would be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Joseph brings the shepherds inside, and there is the tiny savior of the world, just as the angel had promised. The noise and bustle settled down as the shepherds left to tell everyone they met about the incredible news they had received. Mary lay back down, Jesus at her breast, pondering this night and all the events leading up to it. This treasure she would hold deep in her heart. The Virgin Mother will have more to ponder as her baby grows up. I had planned to cover Mary's life in a single episode, and we've only made it to the birth of Jesus. Now I'm expecting that Mary's story will be three episodes total. In the next Dicey Bible story, we'll look at the life of Mary as Jesus grows up, becomes a man, and begins his ministry. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and telling your friends about Dicey Stuff. It takes you to make this a fruitful ministry. God's peace be with you. Oh hey, DSPS! Stay on track with me now as we do a bit of digging in the dust bins of history. This might be a bit confusing, but I'll try to make it clear. St. Irenaeus was a church father and the bishop of Lyon, France, and he died about 200 AD. Irenaeus was brought up in Smyrna in a Christian home, which was kind of unusual in that day. When Irenaeus was a child, he heard Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, speak. Polycarp heard the aged Apostle John speak the word. You remember John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who reclined at the table with Jesus during the Last Supper, who wrote the Gospel of John, and First and Second, Third John, and the Revelation? Yeah, that John, the evangelist. So a short line runs from Jesus to Irenaeus. Jesus the Christ, John the Apostle, Polycarp, Irenaeus. St. Irenaeus wrote about the connection between the Virgin Eve and the Virgin Mary. This is what he said. And if the former... Eve, did disobey God, yet the latter, Mary, was persuaded to be obedient to God, 
in order that the Virgin Mary might become the advocate of the Virgin Eve. And thus, as the human race fell into bondage to death by means of a virgin, so it is rescued by a virgin, virginal disobedience having been balanced in the opposite scale by virginal obedience. Eve disobeyed God, and the world fell into sin. Mary was obedient, and the world was redeemed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dicey Stuff, the podcast where Lois talks about this big dicey adventure called life. You're welcome to send your comments and feedback to DiceyStuffPodcast at gmail.com. Please, if you would, subscribe and share. Until next time, roll on, friends.